Hey, this is Brian Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today I've got Rob Pruce on the line from New York City. And folks, most of you will know Rob as the keyboard player from The Spoons. And after that honeymoon suite, Rob went on later to be the associate musical director for the Broadway production of Mamma Mia in New York City. And he was also in the orchestra pit playing some piano for the Phantom of the Opera Toronto production. Not bad for a kid from Burlington. Rob, Rob, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. I'm doing good. Thank you, Brant. So good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. And uh, we had met uh, last week in New York City. I, I appreciate you making the time. We had a great chat. We did. I'm a huge Spoons fan. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about that. Now, the thing that sticks in my mind about that chat that we had is that you, you were only 15 when you joined that band. What was, I was, what yeah. Was, what was that like? Well, it was... I, I felt like I was ready in a weird way because I had been in bands already since I was 10 years old. Uh-huh. So I joined my first band, my, my best friend across the street who lived across the street from me, Bob Hunter, was mm-hmm. a, uh, playing bass. And I was, I guess I had just turned, I was 10 turning 11. And he's, and I remember him telling me, yeah, you know, a couple guys in the neighborhood, we're going to put a band together. And if you want to like, you know, come play piano, come along. And I was, I had already just been thinking of that it would be something I'd like to do. So 10, 11 years old, I was already in a band. So by the time I was 15, I was like ready to do something more, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I kind of knew the Spoons from from Burlington. Like just they were like the, the local new wave band. Okay. Um, and so when their keyboard player left the band and they had an, an ad in the Hamilton Spectator auditioning for keyboard players. And like I remember coming home from school, seeing that ad and like just like freaking out going, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Wow. <laughs> so like and, calling it calling up. And then what happened? Did you, you talk to Gord? Well, I, I went to audition. Like, like I called the number and it was Gord. And yep. they were auditioning people in their rehearsal space. And I took my keyboard there and my amp. And I think I just never left. Like, I, I mean, I guess they'd auditioned maybe. I don't know how many people they'd auditioned before me. But it just sort of worked out that I just then didn't leave. Wow. That's great. And we did our first gig like two weeks later. Which was great. So I, because I had a tape of their of a live gig that they had done, because they'd been together for almost a year at that point. Okay. And so um, I listened to that, and I already knew some of their songs, and we just worked like rehearsed a lot. That I mean, that was what we spent most of our evenings doing, because they were they were all in uh, college and university at the time, mm-hmm. and I was I was in grade eleven, ten, grade ten or eleven, I guess. Wow. <laughs> so stupid. So bizarre. So yeah, like two weeks later, we did our first gig, and the, my first gig with the band was the night that John Lennon got killed. Oh wow, really? So that's a it's a weird date in my history where, you know, the world mourns John Lennon as I do as well. But I remember we were doing our our first show, and we were on a on a break between sets. Uh, we were playing at the Edge, this yeah. club in Toronto, yeah. and um, there was we were up in the dressing room, which was like the the office of the guys who own the club, and they got a call like just after 11 o'clock from somebody in New York, one of the guys saying that John Lennon had been shot. And then it was like like five or 10 minutes later that then the news came on the radio, like that we were listening to the radio at the time as well. Yeah. So we got this call, this like call directly from New York to say, we just heard that John Lennon has been shot. Wow. Which is so weird. So I always associate that day being very happy and very sad at the same time. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So that was your first gig at The Edge. And then... Yep. Um, and you just went from there. And you guys had some great tunes. Like, like I said, I was I was a Spoons fan when I was a kid. Still am. But um, you. you know, those old emotions, Nova Heart, uh-huh. Tell No Lies, and of course, Romantic Traffic. 
And then, uh, so you, so you left the band and then went to honeymoon suite afterwards. I did. It wasn't the direct, it wasn't a direct move. Um, there was about nine months between them. Um, cause when I left the spoons, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I just had felt like I had kind of outgrown the band in a way or ju- not really outgrown. I just kind of wanted to move on, but I didn't really mm-hmm. know what I wanted to move to. And I felt like I just needed to get away from it to figure it out. Yeah. So I left the band and, um, I was working on some songs, like some songwriting on my own and collaborating with a few people, sort of directionless, but just kind of, you know, holding out hope that something was was in the air because I didn't there was nothing else I wanted to do besides music anyways. And um, I actually was in New York in that summer. So this was the summer of 86. Okay. So long ago. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and I and I was working actually with a guy who used to be a, one of the managers of Honeymoon Suite. Oh. He had left the management company, and he was like my manager for my solo project, which we didn't really know what it was at that point, anyways. But mm-hmm. I remember Honeymoon Suite were playing at a club in New York called the Ritz. Mm-hmm. So we went to see the show, and I met the guys. And it was like a couple of months later that their keyboard player Ray Coburn quit the band. Yeah. And so the tour manager g- gave me a call and said, you know, we knew we know of your work from the Spoons, and if you want audition, we uh, we're going to be holding auditions at this rehearsal space. Um, in I think they were rehearsing in Mississauga at the time, and, and um, they said, learn, you know, here they, he gave me a list of like thirteen songs, and he said, pick you know four or five songs or whatever. And come down to the rehearsal space, and we'll just play with the guys and see how it goes. That's great. And it was really exciting. And I and then the more I thought about it, I kind of got like really inspired. And I thought, you know what? This, I'm not doing anything else right now. This seems like the right thing for me to try to do. Even mm-hmm. though I'm auditioning, it's like it's like playing a lottery in a way. Yeah. But I got really determined, and so I decided I'm going to learn all these songs. Like he had told me to learn four or five songs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, forget about it. I, so I spent this whole weekend like buried in my bedroom with my keyboards. Wow. Um, and I learned all the songs so that when I went to the audition and they said, you know, what songs did you learn? And I just said, well, pick a song. It doesn't matter. You know, like now I've learned them all. So I think that kind of, they liked that in the first place. Oh, for sure. Um, and as it turns out, it's because they had gigs, they were in the midst of a U.S. tour, a couple of different U.S. tours and they were like raring to get back into it and they didn't want to have to wait too long. Yeah. So four days after I auditioned, we were playing in Kansas City and we were opening for Journey. Wow. Which was crazy. So I had made a little, I had a little notebook with my little cheat sheet with the chords for the songs. You know, like what sound, <laughs> what sounds to use, because because I had to like quickly program my keyboards and stuff. Yeah. So and, what was it like? Know, just this, right on your this, keyboard? Huh? You just you just had that right on your keyboard? You know, yeah, it was a little notebook, and I snuck it on my keyboard because it was we were playing like in a big <laughs> hockey stadium, so nobody could see it anyways. You know. That's hilarious. Um, and it was all about Johnny and Derry and the guitar dudes, anyways. So I was happy to like be back with Dave on the drums and and be in my keyboard rig and wow. I could kind of keep my little notepad on top of one of my synthesizers <laughs> so I knew what the heck was going on because I, awesome. I jumped because I just like jumped right into it you know yeah. singing and, and playing all the parts yeah and it was a it was such a fun thing but see now this sort of leads into one of my songs that I chose for you okay and, and it was it the is it the first one it's bad attitude is that the first one yes it is on my list it is yeah that is okay well that's why I really you know I really tried to think of songs that really gave me like a really good feeling uh, um, through the sound of the music and I think the reason that I chose Bad Attitude is one of the songs is because when I decided that this was going to be my mission to learn these songs Mm -hmm. and I didn't really know the album The Big Prize it had come out in like the beginning of that year and I knew Feel It It Again of course because it was on the radio and I knew What Does It Take 
But I didn't know the rest of the album, so so finally I went and I bought the CD, and and I just put it on. And from the start of Bad Attitude, I was like, "Wow!" I was so excited listening to it, thinking this is going to be my next band. Wow! Like I sort of made this determination for myself. So it's always the sound of Bad Attitude as that song starts, and it, it was me like turning on my my musician brain to like listen so closely to to hear and try to figure out what I was going to be learning to play. You know, that is so cool. Um, yeah, and so so then it worked out, and and uh, yeah, and like Ray Ray Coburn's keyboards on that album were so fantastic, and so for me it was so fun to learn that stuff, anyways. So it was like a crash course in, in honeymoon suite. Well, I was gonna say you just jumped in with both feet there. Yeah, both feet and four keyboards. Because <laughs> I had, I mean, I, you know, those were the days there was like no, it was nothing happening with computers or anything. So. Yeah. You wanted to have two or three different sounds. You had to have two or three different keyboards. Yeah. So fortunately, I had the gear, and so I was kind of ready for the gig as well. You know, so I could could make a good setup with the sounds and find all the right sounds I needed and stuff. Now, did did you have that gear from your spoons days? Some of it I had from the spoons days. Some of it I had in, like sort of accumulated al- along the way and hadn't even really used with the spoons either. Like there was a couple of keyboards that I had that I wasn't really using in the spoons. I was just kind of using them at home with some home recording setups and stuff. Okay. Wow. Very cool. Plus I had, plus I had really long blonde hair at that time too. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that. So I fit, so I fit right in cause I didn't have any sort of s- short new wavy spoons haircut. My hair was like, <laughs> gr- but it was growing outrageously. So I kind of fit in with the look as well. I remember that. That was quite the transition for you actually. I know. It's yeah. funny because it, it even made the news. Like like when I joined the band finally, mm-hmm. I remember even there was like a blurb in the Toronto Star or the Sun saying, ooh, former new wave keyboard player Rob Proust is now playing with this, with Honeymoon Suite. Yeah. And it's at the time, it seemed like a weird transition because you know, stylistically, things seemed so different, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I mean, looking back now from, from the distance of many years, I've, I just realized that I had grown up loving so many different kinds of music anyways. I realized how much I loved rock and roll from my, my early days, like when I was 10 or 11 playing in bands. So Honeymoon Suite sort of brought me back to that feeling of being one of the guys in the band. It's not all about the keyboards as much as you're you're part of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Because, I, I mean, I loved Queen so much when I was a kid, and, and part of my desire to play in a band came from hearing Freddie Mercury's piano mixed in to Brian May's guitars, and and it really was that combination that I loved. Yeah. So, well, your your love for uh, various types of music actually plays into what you did next. <laughs> what's what's next on my list? What well, what well, with Mamma Mia? Oh, well, you mean with the shows? Yeah, yeah. totally. Right. And I think that that comes from that that love of just the diversity of the music, and I mean, especially from from the Queen albums where they went from like really campy kind of theatrical songs to Brian and Rogers, super heavy stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's that combination. And I guess I always just grew up loving that range of music really. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. You've had a great career so far. <laughs> Thanks. So, so what are some of the things that you're working on now? Um, I'm subbing on Phantom of the Opera Yeah, a little bit, not a lot. Um, it's, but it's, it's a show that has come back into my life in the last year, mm-hmm. which has been amazing because Mamma Mia, closed we closed the broadway production almost two years ago yes so since then i've been doing uh like a bunch of different workshops of some musicals that are in development Mm -hmm. and and things that are still in development i was involved with a with a presentation of bad out of hell which is running in toronto right now awesome 
and it was in London earlier this year. But uh, we did a workshop of it in New York. It's been a couple years ago now. Um, but it was super exciting to get to play all those Jim Steinman songs for Jim Steinman. Yeah. Um, as they were kind of doing the final development of the show. So I've, I've done a few different workshoppy things like that. Um, and I've been involved with this musical called Once, mm-hmm. which ran on Broadway five – well, it opened five years ago. Um, and then it ran for a couple of years and then it's been on tour as well. And I, I've been the musical supervisor, one of the music supervisors on that for the last couple of years. And that just finished earlier this year as well. So I'm sort of in the midst now of putting together a project of my own, which has no name and no specific destination at this point, but it's like, if it's the next thing mm-hmm. on my agenda for music that I want to do for myself. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So it's kind of bubbling under in a lot of ways. Like I've got a, a million different ideas of how I want to do it. I just really miss playing music for people. Like so almost like I just miss traveling a lot and mm-hmm. going to places. Like like it was great to be doing Mamma Mia on Broadway for so many years because people came to us. Mm-hmm. So I loved playing that music and it was kind of cool that we got to just be there and people came to the show. But it's it's that communication with an audience that I've I've loved my whole life anyways. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm not really doing a show like that, I feel like I'm going to turn it around and go back out and just do that again. So it's sort of taken, it's taken shape and bubbling under. So, yeah, no, that, that was the project that we talked about, I believe. And I, yes, exactly. You know, That's right. I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but I, I, <laughs> it, it sounded very exciting to me and, you know, I, th- I think it's great. And, and, uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to see it come to fruition for sure. Good. I can't wait. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so your songs, Rob. So we talked a uh-huh. little bit about Honeymoon Sweet, Bad Attitude, and I think that's great. That's a good leadoff. Uh, next on your list here, you've got Billy Joel, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. That is a song that, for me, it's a it's a funny thing where uh, the way you describe the, the way you want people to approach their choice of songs for the show, mm-hmm. that was the first song that came to my mind because I get such a specific feeling from that song mm-hmm. and and for such a specific reason because it's it was like a moment in time in my life really? um it was the because i was thinking about that song how it was on billy's album the stranger which came out in 77 so it came out 40 years ago crazy and I, which is crazy and i wasn't a huge fan of that album at the time i was a huge fan of whatever was on the radio so i loved just the way you are i loved my life and uh, I was in a band at that time. I had a, uh, a band with a couple of friends, and we were called Black Diamond, mm-hmm. named after the Kiss song and not the Cheese. Um, <laughs> which all my all my friends who like don't know the Kiss song, they like to make jokes like, "Oh, was it a cheesy band?" But no, it, we played we played Black Diamond with no rising risers. Um, but anyways, my friend Jim, who played guitar in the band, uh, he was a huge Billy Joel fan, uh-huh. and so he, at that time. He, he sort of turned me on to more of Billy Joel's music. I was more of an Elton John fan. Yeah. Like like if, if you had to pick like a piano playing singer-songwriter guy, mm-hmm. I feel like in those days it was always a split in some ways between Billy and the American style or Elton and the British style. So I yeah. was more of the Elton. Um, but I, 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 everybody knew that song, scenes, scenes from an Italian Restaurant. But the specific moment that it hit me was it was in the summer of 1994 okay. and Elton and Billy were doing a tour together. They did this it was the first year that they they decided to do a, a duo like mm-hmm. a, like a collaboration and they did this tour called Face to Face. 
and I was super excited because that in that year I was I was still playing in theater. I was playing uh, Miss Saigon at the time in Toronto. Okay. But I had kind of reconnected, and it was actually through Elton and Billy's newer albums that they had released in those years. Elton released an album called Made in England mm -hmm. in 93, I think. Or maybe that was 94, 95, around that time. But Billy had just released River of Dreams. Mm -hmm. So it was like they were both enjoying this these never-ending careers. And I was kind of reconnecting with my roots of playing piano and playing rock and roll piano and stuff. And so when I heard that they were going to tour together, I thought, oh, man, this is amazing. So I was super excited they were going to be coming to play in Buffalo. So I got a ticket for the show and went to Buffalo and ended up getting like like almost upgraded seats because I was picking up the tickets and there were other tickets available hmm. as I was at the box. It was a really weird sort of fluky thing. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly how it happened, but it turned out that there were these really good floor seats available, like pretty close to the stage. Wow. So I got these seats and I think I sold my other tickets. I don't even remember how it happened now, but I just remember I was super close to the stage. And... Elton did a set and then Billy did a set and in Billy's set he did scenes from an Italian restaurant mm -hmm. and there was just something about the nature of that song because you know it's like an epic sort of a song where it yeah. starts with a section and then it goes into another section the faster section the Brenda and Eddie section yep. and then it kind of returns back to the opening and the saxophone and all that stuff and there was just this moment of seeing it performed live in this outdoor stadium where the transition just hit me like it was like a warm summer night yeah, it's just it's it's funny. Like it just gives me this feeling. Anytime I hear that song, like like six minutes into it, after the fast section and it comes back, I I'm sitting in that outdoor stadium in Buffalo and I can feel the summer breeze in my hair. Wow, it's the weirdest, and it's it's that just that sound. You know, I, I when he when they return to that kind of slow part for the the um you know it's almost like the crescendo of the song after the Brenda and Eddie yes. bit that just yeah. it's it's a really powerful you know segment of the song i know exactly it really what is. You're and saying. That, that's a, and that's exactly the moment and i think it was something to do with like in a live concert setting the tempos are a little freer like i think it slowed down a little bit more than it does on the record and mm -hmm. it was just like a perfect sound system like i was thinking why it moves me so much and and why the memory is tied so specifically to that outdoor event mm -hmm. and i think a couple of years well not not a couple of years i saw super tramp on their uh, breakfast in america tour which was at the cne stadium in toronto nice in 79 wow. so i was that must like, have been great i was a I was a kid at that point. I think I just started high school um, and I went with a bunch of friends and I remember at the time they were like really sort of saying this tour is the most high tech, like this is the best sound system you've ever heard for a live band. Okay. And of course, Supertramp had, you know, such in like sort of uh, complex arrangements with, with the sax player and with all the different keyboard layers and stuff. Yeah. And so hearing them in the CME stadium with this like super studio quality sound was amazing. And I was thinking that that, that moment in the Billy Joel song, there's a similar kind of a sound when, when it returns to the introduction and it's the saxophone with the strings on top of it. Yes. And it, it, rem, it reminded me that it's, it's such a typically 70s kind of a sound. And maybe it's triggering like a, a, a deeper memory in my, my history of going to concerts and stuff. It's like that outdoor experience hearing yeah. this, this really good arrangement like that. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, that could be. So I, 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 I love considering the possibility of things like that. You know, and yeah. I, I'm all about, you know, when you when you feel those feelings that songs make you feel thinking about why and that, because there's always a story behind it if you dig a little bit deeper. That's right. Yeah. And, and you dig like for me, it's it's digging deeper. And then I also then re all of a sudden recognize 
maybe other song connections to it as well. Because sometimes I like recognizing when bits of a song remind me of another song. Yeah. I like that because I just feel like nothing stands on its own completely. There's always some reason that something moves you in a, in a certain way. Yeah, exactly. You know? And really, I it's mean, cool. there, are, there are only 12 notes, right? So <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, thinking about that, uh, that tour, I kick myself still for not seeing those two play together. Oh, yeah. They did it a couple years in a row, too. Like, I think they did it until... I think I saw them several times over the year, like over about the period of about four years. I saw that first show in Buffalo, and that was only the fourth show that they did together as well, hmm. which is amazing. Because they, they, they opened the tour with three nights in Philadelphia, three wow. nights in some huge outdoor stadium. So the fourth show was in Buffalo. So you could kind of tell the whole thing was fresh for them. They were still kind of getting the hang of it all, you know? Yeah, which is cool like, to see. Like what to do together. Yeah, it was really great. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So I was talking to somebody about um, Billy Joel playing with uh, Paul McCartney. At, uh, oh, yeah. Did I, did I tell you this when we talked? I don't know. Oh, I think maybe you did tell me that, right. And, so Billy Joel was playing with Paul at uh, Nassau Coliseum. J.J. French actually told me this story. So they're they're mm, playing, mm-hmm. and um, it wasn't rehearsed, right? So they played, yeah. I think, Birthday and Get Back. But, you know, the, the, when, the, when the end of the song came, they were kind of looking at each other you know, not knowing when to end the song because they hadn't rehearsed it. <laughs> but that's the stuff that uh-huh. I want. I want to see that stuff. Totally. You know, like that's that's the real yep. blood and guts of it. So. Yeah, because it's like you're you're winging it, but you're on a stage in front of thousands of people. Exactly. You know? And yeah. yet your your level of winging it is kind of different because whatever choice you make, even if you screw it up or it, it you know it doesn't go exactly how you planned, you, that's how you got to be where you are is by taking those chances as well. Yeah, exactly. When, when you're coming coming up with a song or coming up with arrangements, yeah, basically you you fly by the seat of your pants and you try something and if it works, you repeat it and then you might record it. But there might be variations on it as well because that's kind of the beauty of right when you're in the moment and you haven't really planned it. You just it's it's more exciting in that way. Yeah, and I mean you know that's it's kind of the ethos of what rock and roll is really about too. Right? Totally, totally. Yeah. Yep. And it's funny we we had those kind of moments in us in a weird sort of way. In theater as well, like if we if we were doing Mamma Mia and something like technically messed yeah. up, yeah, and you'd like you'd have to stop the show. The audience went crazy; they loved it. <laughs> really? Because because all of a sudden it's like the wall is broken. The rea- you know you're back to reality. Like oh my god, that's right. This is just uh, uh, people on a stage where things can break down and go yeah. wrong or whatever. Yeah. And then you'd have then we especially like if I'm conducting the show and we'd be in the middle of a song or we'd start a song and something wasn't happening, then you got to like cut the band off and then. Somebody has to come over the speaker and say, ladies and gentlemen, you know, sorry for the technical interruption. We will resume as soon as we can or whatever. Wow. And then and then you have to pick it up from the start of the song. And the audience just loves that kind of stuff because they feel like they're in, in on a secret all of a sudden. Exactly. That's what it is. Right. It's this fascination yeah, totally. almost with like a taboo kind of that wasn't supposed to happen. You know, but yeah, I love exactly. being I love being witness to it. Totally. The first when I was doing Phantom of the Opera uh, the, in Toronto, uh, not in Toronto, we were in Ottawa. It was the first Canadian national tour. OK. Um, so the show had been running in Toronto for a couple of years at that point, and then they put the tour together, and I was playing keyboard for it. And our very first show in Ottawa, have you seen the show? The the show starts with this chandelier on stage, and then yep. it, and then it like the story begins, and as the overture begins with the giant pipe organ, the, the chandelier lifts up and rises up to the top of the theater, and then yep. the show begins. Yeah, yeah. So as they do the prologue, and then the overture starts with the pipe organ. And the chandelier like lifted up and started going up and up, and it froze right over the conductor's head, <laughs> and just got stuck right there. We hadn't even got like it was not even our first performance yet, and so we had to like finish playing the overture, 
and then everything stopped and then they had to like bring it back down to the stage and it started all over again oh no it was crazy but you know these technical things happen and, and again the audience they loved it because you know they know it's not supposed to happen but yeah. and it, it, it's just kind of exciting that is funny wow it's crazy <laughs> Okay, so your next song, Rob, is uh, a uh-huh. very interesting pick. It's by Helen Reddy, and it's Angie <laughs> Baby. I know. I fought. I fought it. I fought putting this no, on the list, you, and then I realized you, you can't fight this stuff. That's that's, that's the best what part. I realized. I realized that because I felt like I should have been picking like really cool songs by Kiss and Queen and Elton John and stuff. No, no. And yet, when I come, when I was like rifling through my my memories of songs in my life that always stuck out in my head as a song that that really spoke to me like so clearly mm-hmm. um hell if it's helen ready so who what the heck you know i was when this song was on the radio i was uh like just about nine years old mm-hmm. and at that time i was obsessed with the radio and i had been playing piano already for a couple of years i started playing piano when i was five okay. so th- around this time when it when, when angie baby was on the radio um, there was a lot of st- songs that were kind of like, well, they were really, you know, telling stories. It wasn't like all love songs or whatever, but mm-hmm. there was a, like such a wide variety of stuff. And this song really told this kind of creepy story about this this girl who's in her bedroom listening to her radio because that's basically her her best friend is her radio and her, the music. Mm-hmm. And there's like a there's a guy spying on her or something, and somehow he sneaks into her room and then she there's like some weird thing that happens with the song on the radio that she turns the volume up and the guy gets like sucked into the radio and then she turns the radio down and he disappears it's bizarre wow yeah and so when i was nine years old this whole these images from the lyric were like so vivid to me yeah and i could just picture this thing and and there was it's like a really cool uh arrangement of the music as well like it's got these very mysterious violin these string things happening it's almost like like from a horror movie or something wow and and i was really susceptible to this stuff at the time because i i I was kind of obsessed and in love with horror movies and the exorcist had come out the year before that yeah or yeah i guess it was the year before and i I was not allowed of course because i was only seven or eight years old Mm -hmm. and i just knew about it like at that time it was like the big marketing thing for the film was we can't show you any pictures of linda blair because you would you'll either throw up or you'll pass out or something (laughs) so nobody's allowed and in fact you know they would they would pass out barf bags to people who were going into the theater because it was like the, the, the perfect marketing scheme, right? Yeah. And so I was like super fascinated by this. Yeah. I thought, what the heck is this all about? Um, and I would hear ads on the radio for The Exorcist and they, they were even the ads scared the crap out of me when I was eight. Yeah. So so I, I loved all that kind of stuff. And there was a song by the Five Man Electrical Band yeah. around that time. They had a song called Werewolf, which was – it was a hit in Canada, at least in Hamilton. It was on CKOC, played to death. Okay. Um, but they had this song about a guy who was a werewolf. And there was a song, they had another song called I'm a Stranger Here, which was like about aliens coming down to Earth. This was even before Klaatu did Calling Occupants. Wow. So I just loved all these songs that told really vivid stories. And so this, this Helen Reddy song is just one of those songs that just reminds me of being so immersed in the sound of the music and, and actually paying attention to a story that was being told that, I mean, that was kind of my life at that time was just listening to the radio nonstop. And I guess that listening turned into wanting to play it as well. Wow. So, so there's Helen Reddy. I actually, I, I, uh, several years ago, almost 10 years ago, 
I did a contribution for a book. There was a, a friend of mine named Scott Heim. He's an author. Mm-hmm. And he was putting this compilation. It's actually a really interesting series that you can get them. I think they're like ebooks you can get on Amazon. Okay. They're called, the series is called The First Time I Heard, little short stories, like different musicians and writers and people. That's great. Um, it was really cool. And so he asked me to, to contribute because he was a huge Spoons fan and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was writing this story about, about the first time my memory of David Bowie was, was hearing fame mm-hmm. on the radio. And my story with fame kind of wound back into the story, the story that I just told you about Angie Baby, because fame, you know how it's got this thing near the end where the voices start really high and then they go really low. Mm-hmm. Fame, 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 fame. And like, it's like this vocal transformer thing. It was like a real studio trick. Yeah. And John but Lennon sings on that too, right? And John Lennon's playing guitar on it as well. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think he even co-wrote it. Maybe. Is that true? I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I think there was some connection that they had at that time. Um, but when I when I had this story in this guy in in this in this collection, I wound in my little a little bit of the story about Angie Baby just because it was all this stuff on the radio that was kind of scaring me a little bit, and I liked yeah. being scared by sounds in that way. Sort sort well, of weird. Who knew that Helen Reddy could be so intriguing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so that's a great story. I'm, I'm just glad that you had this on the list for that reason because that story completely validates you know, this program and what I tried to do in all my favorite people are broken because, yeah, right. you know, it would be, it would be so empty to say, well, you know, I've got five songs here and they're all really cool songs and they're all sophisticated songs and stuff. But you, you know, this is the best part is that you may not necessarily be proud of the fact that your skin vibrates because of a Helen Reddy song, <laughs> but there's a, there's a certain, exactly. there's a certain veracity involved in that. Totally. And, and you have to own, I mean, I mean, people are, are, like, like to dismiss the music that they, that they secretly love. Like mm-hmm. th- there's a book, there's, you know, these books called like the book of one hit wonders or the, the top 100 worst songs of all time, mm-hmm. uh, where people make these lists of these songs that came and went off the charts. But it, inevitably, if I see those lists, I love almost all the songs. <laughs> Because they're like just pop songs that are super fun or super silly or whatever, you know, and and there's nothing wrong with music that serves this purpose only to to like entertain people because that's what it's supposed to do. Exactly. Exactly. The very first single that I ever had when I was a kid, the first song I ever wanted to actually own myself Mm -hmm. was a song by Ray Stevens called The Streak. Okay. I remember that song. It was a big hit. It was like it was a joke. It was almost like a weird country song, right? It was totally a country song, yeah, yeah. but it was it, it was in that same time period, almost as Angie Baby, with that same year, mm-hmm. um, because somebody there was a guy who streaking was the thing for some reason, but there was a guy who who streaked on the Academy Awards that year, and Ray Stevens put out this comedy song. It was like one of those really silly things, you know. Yeah. Um, but I loved it, and that was the, the my grandpa took me to Zellers, and he was going to buy me a record, and he's like, "What do you want?" I, said, <laughs> I want I want the streak. That is so funny! Wow. Yeah. So. <laughs> I do One hit wonders. I love them. Exactly. Um, okay, your next tune is by Genesis, and it's called "Deep in uh-huh. the Motherload." Deep in the Motherload. It's side two, track one on, and then there were three. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to think about why this song was was in the list. Like I, although it wasn't, it was an easy choice because it's it is a song that I didn't necessarily think until many years later that it, it gave me this feeling. Okay. And I realized it, it was like leaving impressions in my, in my soul in a way. It's the mm-hmm. sound of the synthesizers on this song. And again, it had to do with, with me at a particular moment in my life where I was in a band. I was uh, 11 or 12 at that time. 
And you're in a band was, when you were 11. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Plus, I, that's what. So, and I had just gotten my first synthesizer. I think actually, my parents, like, like you know, parents who have sports kids, they, they spend all their money on hockey gear or whatever. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, my parents knew that th- that this was like a serious business for me. So, in the early days, they rented me an electric piano, and then and then at one point, they bought me the synthesizer, and it was amazing. It was wow. a very very simple kind of a not I wouldn't say a beginner synthesizer, but like a really basic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it was probably around the time that Genesis released this album. And so I was listening to music in a whole different way now because now that I had a synth, I was I felt like like, like more of a connection because I could hear these sounds and go, oh, I think I could figure out what that sound is. And I can mess around with this filter and this modulation and learn how to create recreate these things. Mm-hmm. So Genesis had a song at the time. Uh, the single was called Follow You, Follow Me. Yep. Which was a great song. Yep. Um, and that was the last song on side two of this album. So Deep in the Motherload started that side of the album. So I, I think like in those days, you know, if you had a one favorite song on, on a side of an album, for me anyways, I, I would tend to listen to that one side more than the other side. I, 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 just, I just wanted to get to the song that I really wanted to hear. Yeah. So I think I would put on side two of this album and it would start with Deep in the Motherload and these keyboards would start it and it was just this massive synth sound. And it's got kind of an, an interesting groove to it. And I ju- it's just one of those things. It gives me that feeling of, of my early days of being in a band and just like, like again, it's almost like, like when I was learning the Honeymoon Suite songs, just listening so closely and, and kind of analyzing how is this created and how can I do this thing? Because this is just something that I I'm, I'm want to do so badly. Love it. Love it. And it's that progress. I guess it's that progressive sound as well because I n- was never really into progressive music. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I should be as a keyboard player because I would read these keyboard magazines and always they featured uh, Rick Wakeman and Keith Emerson and Tony mm-hmm. Banks and all those all those guys, and I loved the pictures of them surrounded by their keyboards. But then I would but then I would put on Elton John and just play piano and put on Freddie Mercury and Queen and just play piano. Wow. So I started dipping my toes into the synth world, and I think maybe those Genesis songs, especially "Follow You, Follow Me," had a really simple kind of synth solo. And mm-hmm. Gary Wright had Dream Dreamweaver at the time as well. Yes. So synthesizers were kind of creeping more to the forefront in a lot of the pop stuff. Sticks as well. So I guess I was I was becoming more more interested in a lot of the pop progressive music at the time. Yeah, Paradise Theater around that same time. Even a little before that, it was. It, this was even like around the Grand Illusion time. Like "Come Sail Away" was on the radio. Ah, uh, yes. You know, and so there's there's still a lot of the mixture between the piano and the synth, and yeah, it was just just something that strikes me in that way. And I guess I'm I'm listening to music with such an analytical ear. Even at that early period of my life, it was it was analyzed with love, I guess, because that was just the thing that I was was just really obsessed with. Yeah. That's great. That's why it was it was hard to pick five songs fundamentally, like when you first described it to me, because I thought I could pick a million songs. Oh, I know. I'm sorry, Rob. It just <laughs> never ends. But it's good. But it's that's why it's good to narrow it down too, right? Yeah. But I mean, people come back on the show. Some people have done the show like three times. So you know, well, please, you know, don't worry about that. We'll uh, we'll have <laughs> you back. You talk about your next five. Uh-huh. No worries at all. So your last one on your first list here is. Uh, Another really cool selection. It's uh, the Partridge Family and Summer Days. And I, as a kid, I, I love this pick because I, as a kid, was fascinated with David Cassidy. Me too. Uh, like I wanted to be him. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. He he was our for me. He was my first rock slash pop idol. Yeah. Definitely. Me too. Uh, yep. And, and 
um, when I was, I mean, I watched the show when it was on the air. So like, I think it was Friday nights, you know, I lived for that show and I was mm-hmm. only five years old or something at the time. Yep. Like it was, it was on, it started when I was probably four or five, but I probably really started watching it within those first couple of seasons. One of the first albums I ever had, when I think of my, my earliest record collection and how much pride I took in just having a couple of records that I could look at on the, on the shelf and go, Oh my God, I can't believe I own this recorded thing and i and i had partridge family's first album and this and the very first sesame street album <laughs> those are like my two prized possessions that's and great. that was sort of like like the arc of my life was rubber ducky and and i think i love you <laughs> right it's so stupid but i look at it now and i think of course it makes sense because those those things are still kind of things that i i feel connected to it and again it was the sound of that music yeah um I think when this song "Summer Days" was on the third Partridge Family album, and uh, I had already, I'd been playing, I'd started playing piano. I took started taking lessons just a few months before this album was released. Mm-hmm. I was I was just almost like turning six years old, and I guess already it was doing something like like the sounds. It's easy for me to think now. Oh yeah, I knew it then, but I totally didn't know it then. Mm-hmm. But it was like it was working its magic because this song "Summer Days," it kind of opens up with this. Uh, harpsichord it's like a harpsichord introduction okay. and then there's a piano glissando that comes in that kind of swoops into the song mm-hmm. and the whole song is just basically surrounded by this sound it's actually when I think of it now it's really a sound of the 60s because it comes from the sound of the Beach Boys and the sound of Phil Spector records mm-hmm. and a lot of those guys who played on those records were on the Partridge Family records as well oh really the I studio, didn't know that yeah the studio musicians who did those records were like the top LA guys really Hal Blaine yeah Hal Blaine was the drummer on those records and if you look at the credits on those Partridge Family albums, it's the same people doing the arrangements and the string arrangements and stuff. Wow. So so it's it's like authentic, authentically cool pop music, even if it is the Partridge Family. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So so they were badly faking it on TV, but the action but the people who made the records actually like cared about what they were doing. Yeah. So so I think as the years went by and, and I always remembered back to my early Partridge family days, this this one song, even though it wasn't on that first album which I had, it yep. was a little later, but it was something about the sound of those keyboards again that that reminded me of that feeling of like summer because it, it's like a childhood summer sort of thing. The sound of those records and the sound of their music, probably, probably the sound of David Cassidy's voice in the mix as well. Yeah. I had huge, huge posters of him on my wall when I was a kid. Oh, me too. I was I was obsessed with him. Oh yeah, I remember I had a friend when, like around that time, I was probably six or seven, and a, a mm-hmm. kid who lived a couple doors down had gone on to see him perform in concert at at Cine Stadium, and I remember being so jealous, and, and at the same time, like just trying to picture in my head what it w- would have been like to see him in real life. Couldn't yeah. even imagine it. Oh, I know, I know. He uh, that, that his hair was what I really liked, <laughs> like, you of know, and I kind of like patterned my hairstyle after his. Oh my god! I think every kid in the seventies did. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But I and I and so I would like be in school, and when I was writing on on pages like for for tests at school or whatever, yeah. on the back of my pages, I I had perfected my my drawing of the Partridge Family in concert. Oh, wow. and so I and like t- terrible drawing though, because I mean my mom has had saved a couple of of pieces of paper that had this on it and i yep. at the time i remember thinking man I'm, I'm drawing them exactly as they are but it's you know it's like a five-year-old's impression of the partridge family <laughs> but i would draw these little stage lights up in the corners of the page and then i drew like a really bad drum set and like i couldn't really draw guitars but yeah. it was just like trying to capture that that feeling of recreating what i was experiencing that is so funny 
It's wow. crazy. But yeah. yeah, so that song made the list purely from from the sound of those keyboards and and just I think that feeling sort of propelled me through my life because it then reminded me uh, years later of playing Dancing Queen when I was doing Mamma Mia. Yeah. And when I went back to to re rediscover those ABBA songs for the show, I realized how much of a part of my life they were as far as radio songs because I don't think I really owned ABBA records except Mamma Mia. The song the, when it was a single, I played it in in my first band when I was ten. I have a recording of myself playing Mamma Mia. Uh, two days before I turned eleven. No way. Yeah, wow. and it's practically the same. It's practically the same as the show. Like, oh wow! Same key and the music because it's such a simple song. There's not much to it, but that's part of the beauty of it, I think. But You're like a child prodigy. Well, <laughs> not, no, not really. Just just doing what I loved. I mean, really, just just fumbling through it all. You know, that's and awesome. I just sort of not being afraid to just think, why can't I just do this thing? Because I'd been studying classical piano. And my teacher sort of tried to dissuade me from too much in the pop world. So I sort of split my, my world into two halves. And I would go to my teacher and do my Royal Conservatory classical stuff. And then I would go home and look at my Elton John music books and my Queen music books. Awesome. That's so, so great. <laughs> leading a double life. Rock and roll rebellion. Exactly. Love it. That is so cool. You know, this is such a great list, Rob, because it's representative of who you are as a person. And based on your stories, you've come, you've demonstrated your path from, you know, a young music fan and a young musician into, you know, a, a transition into what you've done with your life. And I, I think that that's so great. It perfectly represents, you know, who you are and it tells a great story. Thank you. I, I, I've, I've always had this, this love for my childhood in this way, because I think because, because of the musical elements and how important it has been to me my whole life long. I feel like it's never gone away. And that's why within these songs, it's like an immediate trigger yeah. to, 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 to bring back a memory because, it, because it's this thing that I still do. Like as I was getting ready to talk to you now about this all, I was thinking, man, I've never actually played scenes from an Italian restaurant. Like now I'm really excited to just sit at the piano and play this song. And it's going to give me that feeling when I'm, when I'm sitting at the piano by myself. Exactly. I'm going to get that same feeling just from hitting this, you know, playing those same chords. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, that's fantastic. But that's one thing I love about music is that it's um, it's emblematic of, of you know, your youth. You yes. Know? And, and just those, those songs bring you right back. And yeah. uh, it's just such a fantastic feeling. It is. And I feel like it's, it's a youth thing, but I think it can be timeless as well. Because, I, you know, when I realized that these songs were like from such a specific part of my life in some ways, I thought, well, I still get this feeling from new music today. Mm -hmm. But I guess because it's like it's an accumulated thing as you get older it it doesn't contain the same specific uh amount of importance but every day if i discover new music um which i try to do almost every day i i I'm lo i love following people's links on facebook or wherever people are you know sharing things that they've discovered it's always a constantly new excitement for me to go oh i've never heard this thing even if it's something from the 50s or the 60s it's still or or classical music even like i was discovering an opera from this composer yesterday who i i kind of heard his name but never really heard his music and i put on this thing and it's like a whole new world opens up mm -hmm. it's yeah just, just amazing 
And, and it's great that you can you can discover music now. I mean, you know, there's a special. I think that when we were younger, there were there was just less distractions, and you could be more dialed into music and and really yes. kind of give yourself to it maybe a little bit more, just based on the fact that you know there there wasn't so much going on in your life. But you're yeah. right, you know, so, and, and I'm thankful for that. That at this point in our lives, um, we can still hear passages of music, and it still makes your skin vibrate. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I guess like, and it's interesting the way you describe it like that. Make, that makes your skin vibrate. For most most of us, it does come from some specific memory in our life. Mm-hmm. But I I think you're right. The potential does exist still to have your those vibrations happen from something that you are experiencing for the first time. It's not just a memory because the memory is of the first time. I mean, that's what a memory is, right? It's yes. like that's that's the first time you experience this thing, and then it can accumulate over the years as well. Mm-hmm. But I think if you if you stay open to it and to any experience in your life, it's like you see the world with brand new eyes every moment. I, this happens to me sometimes too if I go to an art museum or something and I'll like – walk through a couple of galleries and see paintings whether i'm that interested in the paintings or i'll I'll try to find the things that i like and then i'll just like walk outside and, and i see like buildings and and trees in almost a different way and i think oh it's like my eyes have been sort of renewed in a way yes exactly and it's and it's a great feeling yeah yeah no i totally agree i have learned a lot today rob thank you very much <laughs> thank you i have too this has been amazing <laughs> It's a great chat. I could talk about music, as you know, for weeks. And uh, oh man, I know. I'm, I'm so glad that we've 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 connected now. And we should. I'm going to thank Lisa McDonald for sort of putting the connection between us because it was great for me to learn about you from her. And I feel like yeah, we could talk endlessly now. And like you've got me thinking about this more now with with all the music in my life. Well, you're coming back. We're going to do another show or five. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 Lisa is actually doing the show. It's funny. She's going to do it next week. Oh, good. Yeah, I was, I was actually, I did her radio show yesterday, and we, uh-huh. we talked a little bit about you. So I think oh, that, cool. that airs tomorrow. Um, so if you nice. want to hear that, we talked about you know how she kind of connected me with you and so forth. Cool. But uh, yeah, I'm thankful for that. Um, you're a fantastic guy, and I'm, I'm definitely glad we met. Me too. So, um, I will be in touch with you and, uh, we'll, we'll get another uh, episode happening. Cool. That would be amazing. All right, my man. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Brent. Have a great day. You too. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Rob Bruce. Take good care. Until next time. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. 